All right. Uh, thanks for coming back. There's another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Um, I think today I wanted to talk about how to teach, uh, like in a clinical setting. Um, now my experience, you know, talking about this, it's going to be teaching like, so, you know, like this will come from my perspective, which is I, you know, I was a undergrad student in chemistry and then I was a medical student and then I was a resident and, and then I was a fellow and now I'm an attending. So I've gone through these various stages of being, uh, you know, in training and now I'm no longer in training and I now, you know, pr- practice independently. So my, this, th- t- this today, it's going to be from that perspective, but I think what I'm going to talk about can apply to anybody that's in any sort of training. Um, but I will be talking about, so the, the types of, so I, I, te- I'm at a, I practice at an academic center, a large American academic center. And I teach pro- almost probably every day, um, yeah, probably every single day. The types, these are the types of trainees that I, that I interact with, uh, medical students, residents, fellows. And when I say, so medical students, the type of medical students I I teach are uh, medical students from every different background, but it's usually in the anesthesia setting. They're, they're coming to do an anesthesia rotation. Um, or I teach anesthesia residents, or I teach critical care fellows, uh, which are a fellow is just a, one, they have more training. A fellow is extra optional training you get after residency. And the types of fellows that I'm usually training or training or, or working with are critical care in the ICU setting when I'm in the in the ICU. Uh, additionally, I'm, I also very almost every day, I uh, am with nurse anesthetist students and often um, NPs and PAs that are in training as well um, uh, in the ICU. So there's a lot of different trainees that I'm around. And then also, you know, new nurses, uh, but I guess those aren't necessarily trainees. I guess my point is, you know, if you're in an academic center, even even if you're not, there's a lot of people that are, you know, um, tra- training around you. Um, and I think it's very important to know how to teach in a clinical setting. So today I'm not just talking about teaching like on a chalkboard, right, in a classroom. That's a whole that's a whole other thing. But teaching on the job in a clinical setting, which is what I do basically every day. So I want to just talk about that and explore that and how to, how to, how to really explore how everyone can get the, the most out of this, out of teaching, not just your trainee, but you yourself when you go about teaching and how to teach. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a, I, I'm always a grain of salt, right? I am not an expert in teaching. I have no degrees in teaching. I don't know anything about teaching. What I do know about, you know, teaching, I, I get from my wife who is a, uh, has been an educator for a long time and is very skilled and a masterful educator. Um, and I've picked up a lot of things from her. But uh, anyway, so th- so uh, whatever, let's just get into this. All right, so I think one of the first principles to talk about is how influential you are as a trainer, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, maybe you're a charge nurse or maybe you're you know, a very experienced nurse or, <clears throat> or you're a nurse anesthetist listening to this or you're something that I can't even think of. I want you to think about how incredibly think about when you were training and how incredibly influential the person that was training you, how, how they were right. The first, sometimes the first interactions, the first day of how someone did something has stuck with you your entire career, <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? Like the way someone said something or the way they're like, Oh yeah, this is how I've done it. And then that just, there's something about being, uh, 
in that uh, in that training mindset where you're learning, where anything you know, things that people teach at you just stick into your brain like like glue. They're just tattooed on your brain, and they stay there forever. Right? <laughs> you will you will you will keep doing those th- those things the same way the rest of your career. Now, I think that's great, right? Being in this very impressionable mode, but there's also great danger and then great responsibility as someone who is involved in training because if you are teaching things the wrong way, <laughs> right? Uh, you are teaching those same habits to to impressionable minds, and I think what's even more dangerous is you may be doing it and you may be teaching things in a way that uh, by your example, right? It's your example. It's the way you're actually doing things. It's not. It's not necessarily what you're saying. Like all, everything you're doing is being observed by by trainees. Why is it being observed? Because they are grope. They are trying to orient themselves. They are groping to understand this new world, particularly new trainees. Right? The medical world is crazy foreign. It's it's crazy, right? It's like nothing like real life. And if you don't have any, if you have very little experience in in medicine, or if you've just been in a classroom for a year or two years or whatever, just learning textbook stuff, and then you're in a clinical setting, it's totally foreign. When I was a medical student, I was just I was so out of it. I was so dumb. I didn't know, you know. I I didn't. I just think back on all the stupid things I did. Not that I like made big mistakes that endangered patients or stuff like that. But my understanding of medicine was so infantile <laughs> at that time. Uh, when I look back, I mean, it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. Uh, and so th- what my point is, trainees are so impressionable because they are, uh, they're observing everything. Not that they're like trying, not spying or whatever, but they're groping for understanding. They're groping to be oriented, to be feel grounded in this new world that they're in. So they're extremely, extremely observant of everything you're doing, right? You know it's true. Just think about when you were a trainee. You were, you were in the exact same mindset. And so because of this, someone can pick up bad habits by example, not by direct, explicit um, instruction, right? People do. People are very, very observant of how people behave, right? That's like part of human nature. We observe people. Um, and then we internalize those things. And then... The you know the way that agree you know egregious acts <clears throat> you know just outside of medicine uh, you know if you think of terrible regimes throughout history like military regimes whatever the reason that all these things get condoned internally is because everybody else is no one's speaking up and people are just act doing things get normalized bad behavior and bad uh, you know um, ways of doing things they get normalized. And then people stop noticing them until something really bad happens. So what? That, so this can happen in medicine where people they, they are observing whoever's training them. They're they're observing their uh, you know whatever the behavior is, whether it's being um, I, I I can't I'm groping for examples, um, but whether it's being like, oh yeah, well we're supposed to do it this way, but I just do it like this, and the way that they're doing it, there's is, you know, not the best way to do it. And so you're teaching that you're, for one thing, you're, you're normalizing that, Hey, you don't really need to do things by the book. You can do things this way. Now there's exceptions to this, of course. Um, so you're normalizing that behavior and then you're in, you're training them with that behavior. And then once that person becomes experienced, now they're dogmatic about their bad behaviors, right? Meaning the way that they do things, they, they believe it's, it's like enshrined, and that it's the right way because they've been doing it the way the whole time. And now to, to retrain or to, to get that behavior out of them is can be nearly impossible because they're dogmatic about it. They're like, no, this is how you do it, right? 
this is the way we've been doing things. Well, that's not a reason to keep doing things. Just because a certain way is the way to keep doing things. It's not a reason to keep doing things that, that same way. So I think my whole point with this is you are you are being watched. If you're training someone, they're they're watching every they're watching how you're talking to other people. They're walk they're watching how you take a break. They're they're watching how you interact with patients. Uh, and they're internalizing every drop of information they're getting from you. They they truly, truly are. So it's a huge responsibility that that you have as someone who's training people. All right, so let's. I, I kind of want to talk about how to actually, you know, hands-on training. So again, I, I oversee lots of different procedures and lots of different types of people, right? I oversee med students doing intubations or putting in IVs or residents putting in an epidural or a spinal or also, you know, breathing tubes. Um, so I observe a lot of these things. Um, I mean, many, many different procedures, many ways to do things. I, I observe, I instruct. My approach, now I'm not saying this is the right approach, but I, I very much believe in, in when you meet a trainee for the first time, you know, you, you understand what their background is and where, what they're, where they're at, and then orient them, help ground them. Um, and, then, and then I really believe in autonomy. I think autonomy, structured and, and safe autonomy is extremely important for people to grow and learn to do things in their own way. It's so important. I, 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 th- I think it's fundamental to becoming an effective clinician as you're training to give people autonomy that they need to grow. Uh, and I'll, let me, I'll talk a little bit more about this. One, one of the first thing, pr- principles for me, I'm just making up this stuff on the spot. I'll, just, I'll call this principle number one. Uh, to, give, to give trainees autonomy is you have to, you have to give them space to struggle. They got to struggle. That is how you, that is how you learn. So when someone's doing, what I mean is constant point by point, turn by turn instruction is not good. Um, to be like, okay, say like you're, you know, training someone to intubate. And so here, let me, let me run you through what I do. So let's say I have a medical student who's never intubated before. And first I say, I'm like, I, I get oriented about where they're at. I'm like, okay, have you ever intubated someone before? And they're like, oh yeah, maybe two or three times. Like, okay, great. And then I will go over the, the very, very briefly not complicated, not a big, not a big lecture, three minutes, I will go over the prince, the basic principles of intubating, right? If you are an expert in your field, you should be able to explain maybe complex procedures, not that intubating is that complex, but uh, in very, you should be able to explain things in very simple and easy understand, understandable terms. Things should not be complex. They shouldn't be opaque. There shouldn't be like a firewall of experience and understanding. You should be able to condense things down in very simple forms into people that aren't even, don't even know anything about medicine. You should be able to explain things like that. So I, I give them a very brief overview, like, hey, here's here's how I do things. There's many ways of doing things. Here's how I kind of do an intubation. You know, walk walk through the steps beforehand. And then I'm like, okay, have at it, right? Um, and, I, and I'll have them intubate. And now I'm observing them and watching them. Um, and they're, they obviously are not going to do very well because if it's the first couple times intubating, they don't, it's hard for them. By the way, med students... You know, if you're a patient somewhere in an academic center, it's possible you have meds. You could have a med student who's inexperienced putting a breathing tube in your trachea. Just that's a reality. Um, it's something you sign up for when you come to an you know, an academic center. So that's just that's just a thing that can happen. Uh, now, I mean, it's safe, right? We're we're observing, and there the whole time. Um, anyway, so my point is, as I watch them, I don't give them point by point instructions. I, I mean, I do sometimes, maybe a little bit, a little nudge here or there, but I stand back and I'm silent. 
I'm silent and I, and I let them struggle for a little bit safely in a very safe way. And I intervene when I feel like it's not getting on when it's becoming unsafe because you cannot learn by someone just standing over your short shoulder, telling you point by point what to do. That's not, that is not how someone's going to learn. Now, there's different, many different types of training situations. Let's, let's go to another situation. Let's say I have a medical student who's going to be intubated, but now I have a senior resident, uh, anesthesia resident, uh, that's overseeing the whole case and they're acting as an attending. I let that person have so much autonomy. I like to, here's what I do. You know, you want to, you want to know what I do when I'm starting a case? Um, so let's say I have a med student that's going to intubate and maybe put in an IV and I have a senior resident who's, you know, they're four years into, into the residency and, you know, they kind of, they definitely, they know what they're doing by that point. I sit in a chair and I keep my mouth shut and I observe, um, you know, I, I talk to everybody about the plan and all that. We get everything grounded against, again, grounding, orienting. And then I sit in a chair and I keep my mouth shut and I let that senior resident run the show because I, I want them to have that experience of, you know, being an attending anesthesiologist and, and running the show. And I think it is that, that is, this is what I mean by autonomy. And you, you give, you give trainees autonomy within their sphere of training, you know, in, 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 and it must be in a safe way, obviously. And they have to be constantly observed and you must step in when you think, when you feel like things are getting unsafe. I think autonomy is just an extremely important principle in teaching people correctly. Um, because, once they struggle and they go through this and that, and then you, then you debrief about it and then you give them pointers about this and that and this, and they, they will remember that stuff. Wow. Do they remember that stuff? So same things with, let's say now let's move to when I'm in the ICU and I have a fellow, uh, a critical care fellow, right? So this is someone who's already done residency and I work with a couple different types of fellows. So they're, you know, they're experienced, they're a doctor, they're, 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 they now have a few years of experience under their belt and they know what they're doing. Um, the, one of the first things I say when I'm on the unit for, you know, a week stretch or whatever, I, I look at them and I say, you are running the code blues. It's one of the first things I say to critical care fellows. You are running it. I'm not running it. You're running it. I make sure that they know that up front so they're prepared so that when someone goes into cardiac arrest, I want them to run it. Uh, anyway, uh, it's been a few days since I've recorded whatever that was. So I, I might repeat myself a little bit here, but um, I think one of the main points that I'm trying to make is you have to you have to create enough space for people uh, to grow and to feel creative and to have autonomy. Like people have to have that sense of creation and autonomy to be able to grow to to step into their role. And you must create that space for them. If you're constantly looking over the shoulder, or if they're feeling that way, right? It all depends on how they're feeling. You may not be thinking you're doing that. It depends on how they're feeling. Um, you just keep them in a box that they they're never able to never able to grow from. Uh, to be able to come to become, uh, you know, fully trained and, and very efficient and reliable and experts in what they do as well. And I find if you foster that type of environment, learners are they they're thrilled, meaning they're very happy to explore their abilities. People as they're learning things like you, you've, you know what I'm talking about when you're learning something new. And once you, you know, you feel uncertain about it first, then you you get you, you become more bold and you want to experiment with how how well you're doing, and it's a thrilling thing to become better and better and better at something. To you know, to getting getting to the point where you're masterful over it. That is a th- very thrilling process. And so when you give learners the environment for them to do that, they thrive and they love it and they they enjoy it. They want to be there, right? They're not just having a miserable experience with their with you know someone that's above them, just top down, 
talking at them all the time, right? We all know what that feels like. We all know what that feels like, and we hate it. Everybody hates that. Everybody hates the feeling of being micromanaged. If we all hate it. We all know when it's happening, and we absolutely hate it. Um, so stepping away from that micromanaging role, and again, you may be doing it, you know, it's possible you might be doing it without even realizing it. Um, if I, I feel like if I'm in a teaching environment and I notice that I've been talking, I've been rambling for a little bit, I'm like, oh, you know what? I need to shut up. <laughs> I'm talking too much. I, I don't want to talk all day, you know, with, with, uh, with my residents or I, my medical students. I want to make sure that they're doing things with their hands and that they're, that I'm out of the environment for a little bit uh, so that they can have that sense of autonomy and, and that, that room to grow. Um, let's talk about making mistakes when, when learners, when they make mistakes, right? There's different types of mistakes, right? So we all make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes at any time, at any point in your career, whatever your career is. Uh, when you're a learner, you make, there's different types of mistakes, right? There's, um, let's see, there's just mistakes of inexperience. Uh, and I don't know if you should call that a mistake, you know, just not doing something well because you're just not very good at it yet, right? You just don't have the experience doing it. Like, you know, a classic one is like teaching how, someone how to intubate, how to put in a breathing tube, how to bag, mask, ventilate, right? Someone who's just barely doing that, you know, they've only done it a couple of times. They're not going to be very good at it. Um, so I don't know if that's, that's, that's a mistake, but, you know, obviously they're having a deficient skill or whatever. I, I'm not even finding the right word for it. It's all, it's all very expected and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, I find that, that learners are like, uh, they, they perseverate on what they, what, what they could have done more and stuff. And I'm always like, just, it's okay. These things will come. It's, you don't, you know, yeah, you can always reflect on what you've done better, but it's, these things take repetition. So there's, there's simply some kind of mistakes um, that will naturally iron out um, with repetition. And, that, and there's not, not much to do to address, though. You don't need to address stuff like that, except give correct instruction timely when it's needed, and then encourage, just, and just encourage them. Just keep encouraging them as they grow along, and those things will just iron out. Now, then there's genuine mistakes of, like, omission, right? Uh, there could be mistakes of ignorance because they didn't know a thing. Maybe there was a deficiency in, in their training where they were, uh, what they learned in a textbook. They didn't, they didn't quite learn that thing or they weren't trained properly on that thing. So there's, like, a mistake of ignorance, uh, which can be a mistake of, of omission, <clears throat> right? And these, these types of mistakes need prompt uh, intervention and instruction promptly. You, you correct them on the spot. Um, that those types of mistakes. I think there's other types of mistakes that maybe should not be necessarily. You got to be careful about correction. And when, when I mean correction, it's always gentle, right? It's always a gentle correction. It's always tone matters so much. Your tone is so important. Um, you know, just just patience and being a, just having a gentle tone. Um, but I think timely correction. Be like, oh no, yeah, this is, you do it this way. That's not the you know just being very direct. Um, and, and gentle, I think is very important. Um, so yeah, those kind of mistakes of ignorance or, or oh, mistakes of omission should just be just corrected on the spot. It's just, it's just in the moment, um, correction. So, um, now there can be, you know, repetitive mistakes or deficiencies that are happening, a pattern that you're starting to see with someone that you've worked with for a while. That kind of correction needs to not be public, in my opinion. That shouldn't happen. Um, in front of a care team in the operating room or in the ICU. There are many conversations that need to happen just between the two of you um, because you don't want to embarrass the person that's learning 
that can stifle their growth and their right that can be that can be devastating that can be devastating um stuff like that can sometimes make people drop out seriously i mean you don't you don't know how sensitive um people can be to uh correction and stuff like that and just even simple things that you think are innocent uh providing that correction in front of people in front of staff that can be devastating to someone so much so that they could they could leave the field they could drop out it's happened i mean it happens um Maybe just that one thing that you just said a little too sarcastically. <laughs> Maybe that was the thing that, that broke the whatever back. And, uh, and that was it for them, right? That could happen. So I, I think you need to be careful. So things need to happen. Some, some sort of correction need to happen between the two of you in private. And um, I always like to say I heard um, lather before you shave, right? So when, you, when you're going to give correction you know, you lather them up with praise, uh, genuine praise, right? Not, not BS. Genuine praise. Like, Hey, I, I love, I love how you do this and this and this. Um, and then I've noticed this and this and this, what do you, how, how what do you think about that? I think, you know, being open-ended asking them questions to try to explore how they're feeling and see where they're at the same page. Cause they might be thinking the same thing you're thinking like, Oh man, this thing, I'm just not doing well. Uh, they may be thinking the same thing. And then it becomes a lot more easy and a more approachable, to address with them. So I think open-ended questions um, and then, you know, privately when, when it, when it needs to happen is best. Now there can be obviously the bad worst kind of mistake, which are like mistakes of negligence and mistakes of like willful negligence. Right. And that, I, I think those mistakes probably need to be, um, well, okay, let me back it up. There's, there's mistakes made by, because of poor judgment. Um, and it's possible that sometimes some people exhibit poor judgment and that they can demonstrate a pattern of poor judgment uh, over and over again, um, like egregiously bad decision making. And if that is something that, you know, you're observing in a learner, uh, it's probably something that needs to be taken to whoever, you know, whoever's in charge of whatever program it is, and it needs to be explored from there. Right. And then whoever's in charge of whatever the program is can then reach out to other people to see if they've seen a pattern. Right. And these are like, you know, really bad lapses of judgment. Um, and I think it's sometimes possible. It's rare, but I think it's possible where some people in healthcare, particularly, and I'm not just talking about med students, but nurses, et cetera, et cetera, respiratory therapists, whatever. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, by the way, um, where some people they get into a program and they're in training or and and they exhibit chronically poor judgment and they may not be fit for the field and i know that sounds harsh to say and it is harsh to say um, but it's also realistic because particularly in this in medicine where where mistakes can can kill people and cost people's lives there are some people that for whatever reason um the judgment that they're exhibiting that it's just not sound um, not, not chronically, but some, you know, they just, but there's a pattern, maybe chronically, but there, there could be a pattern. I'm not saying these people are dumb or anything like that. I don't, I don't mean to say that, but there's sometimes they just don't, it just doesn't fit for, for whatever, whatever reason it is. Um, and they, it may not be the field for them. And it, if, you know, this patterns is suspected, it should be addressed early. Um, not only for patient safety, but for that individual, because if they're not going to make it far in the field, that they should find out about this early on and they should receive that feedback. They should also get, be given a chance, uh, if reasonable, for remediation, right? 
but anyway, so there's yeah, so there's kind of like mistakes of poor judgment, and then there's getting back to the mistakes of just willful negligence, um, and that's a huge problem, right? If people are, are people being willfully negligent, um, if people are lying, right, and you know they're lying to cover their mistakes, that's a big problem. Um, what I'm, one thing I tell interns uh, and med- medical students, I one thing I tell them is you. For me, you can't make a mistake. The only mistake you can make is not asking a question when you, uh, when, you, when you should have. Not asking, not coming for help when you should have. That's the, mi- because everything else is just a mistake of an experience. Um, but when they do something, when it, if an intern, particularly interns, right? Because those are, interns are, are doctors that have graduated from medical school and they can write orders, right? They have power within a hospital system. A medical student doesn't have that much power, doesn't have prescription power powers to write orders an intern does um so interns can they have the ability to cause harm from their ignorance or negligence right um so one thing i i particularly tell interns like the the only mistake you can make in my book is if you you don't come and ask me for help when you feel like you should have needed it um and then you just went ahead with something without being sure about it and it resulted in something bad that's that's a problem and that's something within their control right um and as the as someone who is teaching if you're listening to this you should foster that environment of being accessible. That is so important. They have to feel that you're accessible, so they're not afraid to come to you. Um, I, you know, I've mentioned all the time, like a surgeon who runs an operating room, like a tyrant, uh, where everyone's afraid to speak up. Uh, you know, that's going to result in patient harm because a surgeon can't know everything that's going on in the operating room, and people are scared to speak up, and then something goes on, it gets neglected, it goes, and then suddenly there's patient harm. And that is a lot of the responsibilities on that surgeon's fault in, in this example. So as someone who's teaching, you need to foster that environment of being accessible, not being annoyed, not being sarcastic, uh, but being open and patient and willing to teach. And people pick up on that real fast what kind of you know, teacher you are, I think. I think. I think another really important thing with teaching is pe- uh, to offer feedback, um, timely feedback. Right after, you know, say you spend a day with, a, you know, your nursing student or your medical student. At the end of that day or with that session, you should offer them feedback. Now, I need to work on this, too. I don't always do it. Um, and the necessities of clinical practice sometimes get in the way of, like, patient care. Sometimes you just don't have time. And, I, you know, I'm, I need to work on all these things I'm talking about here. I'm not, I don't do these things perfect either, right? Um, but people, people want feedback. And, um, you know feedback about things that they've done well and things that they can work on and everybody does things well and everybody does things that they could work they work on and if you think hard enough it, that sometimes that's the, kind of the challenge like oh what a, oh they're doing great well it, yeah they're doing great but but you should you know give them the the respect of um coming up with something that they can do even better um and be very specific um and give them and i think giving real-time feedback is is also great like wow that was awesome how you did that um, these little things that are so easy for you to drop just buoy people up, right? They, they mean everything to someone who's in a learning environment that is doing something, that, doing something new. And it builds their confidence. It builds them up. And they feel awesome. They feel awesome that they're doing it. And everybody, and you, and you, everybody has a good day together. But I think giving timely feedback um, at the end of the day right away is, is great. And just be direct. You don't need to be all awkward about it. Like, hey, I think you did this good. I love how you do this. I love this. I love this. I think you could work on this and this. And sometimes, you know, if sometimes, you know, you truly work with outstanding people and you can't like, oh, what? I don't think they can do anything better. But of course they can, right? Yes, they can. Um, and sometimes you, you just come up with something generic, right? 
<clears throat> and that's fine. Um, you know, if you sometimes you just work with, with phenomenal people. I work with phenomenal people. All of them are amazing. Med students, residents. I, I work at a just a just a fantastic place with just incredible people. Um, but yeah, I think timely feedback and then written feedback. If if uh, whatever wherever you work, if they have that, getting that done right away. And um, and I just I just think I, teaching is so fun, right? In another life, I'm like a high school teacher. I'm like teaching physics at a high school somewhere because I I think teaching is so amazing and so fun it's so thrilling it's such an awesome thing and I'm, I'm really grateful that it's also a part of my job uh as well and i i take it serious and i can, and i can always do better i know there's more there's more that i can do but um anyway there's probably more i've talked about but i think i'll leave that topic at that all right let's uh, get to a book today um i read this book a while ago but i don't think i've talked about it on the podcast it's called invisible women Data bias in a world designed for men. This is by Carolyn Criado Perez. Uh, this book is like a fire hose amount of data and research, giving a really definitive and sweeping conclusion. Half the population of the world doesn't really exist in data. I, I've never read a more thorough and convincing book about the the gender data gap that exists in every possible arena you can think of. I came away from this book like horrified and just mostly horrified that i mean that's as i ended this book i was horrified this book will lift lift the veil from your eyes about the numerous ways in which women have been discriminated against in every conceivable way the author does a really good job explaining that man is basically the default human when trying to focus on women involvement in anything like movies or video games it's seen as niche like to be a woman is seen as niche from that standpoint. Like making a movie with a female protagonist, superhero protagonist, is seen as niche. How can half the human population be niche? Right? It's absurd. Where feminism and being a woman is seen as an identity, being a white man is the silent default, condemning, quote, identity politics, while subsuming the dominant default identity that hides in plain sight, being a white man. While the author goes deep into data, her constant theme is always present. There is a data gap for women in almost every field that renders them functionally invisible. Somehow, Americans imagine the working class as being a white man when it is indeed impoverished women who make up a huge chunk of the working class. One of my favorite quotes from this book is, "Work the 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 phrase, and I've, I'll remember this quote for the rest of my life." Uh, quote: "Working women is a tautology or like a redundancy." There is no such thing as a woman who doesn't work, only women who are unpaid for their work. Many examples abound. Cities and highways are designed for the basic commuter into work and back out, a male-dominantly driving route. Women typically use public transportation and do more like trip training, where they ping-pong from place to place on their way home. City infrastructure does less to support such commuters and even less to create a safe traveling environment to them when they experience sexual assault or other acts of sexual menace. Bathroom design is, quote, gender neutral when they are designed with equal floor spacing. However, women have fundamentally different physiology, anatomy, and biology. Not only can they not stand to urinate, but they also menstruate and they get UTIs more often, needing more space and more time in bathrooms. This is tremendously important, particularly in developing countries where women may not use public restrooms at all for safety reasons, and they relieve themselves at night. 
because it is less socially acceptable for women to do it in the open as it is for a man to do it. And that puts them at risk for sexual assault. This also opens women up to getting diseases such as pelvic inflammatory disease or other infectious diseases. I've only covered like seriously three pages of this book. There's so much data. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. He, she, she asserts that women are afraid of open public spaces. This impacts mobility and access to cities. They adjust travel patterns to avoid sexual assault. When some data shows that men are victims of crime at equal amounts to women and that women need to stop being so, quote, hysterical, this is a classic data gap problem. Women are not reporting every single act of sexual assault that is happening. Sexual assault is mostly invisible in the data. Around 85% of women don't have maternity leave in the U.S. Trying to claim childcare as a work expense would be laughable in the default male world. We live in a world where a man can go rent a hotel and like order a drink at a bar before a work conference and get this all paid for. But a woman, a woman cannot ask to cover childcare so that she can attend that same conference. Right? It would be laughable to be like, hey, can I get this covered by work for childcare? Tenure is harder for women because they have limited time to achieve it during childbearing ages. Men who take paternity leave are much more likely to be involved in a child's life, yet this is rarely offered to help offset childcare for women. And let's make something very clear. The economy could not operate without the unpaid work that women do. Is it included in the GDP of countries? Of course not despite the fact that unpaid work of women could account for $3.2 trillion of U.S. GDP. If women do work and file taxes, uh, if they file their tax returns jointly with their husband or partner, they're likely to be taxed more because the lesser salary, which is typically a woman's salary, is stacked atop the higher salary and gets taxed more. Before the 1970s, the New York Philharmonic had zero women. Ten years later, it was almost 50% women. How did, how did they achieve such remarkable progress? Blind auditions. Computer work used to be relegated to clerical women work. Women built the first computer, but as soon as it was clear that it would have a major impact in business and economy, men took over. Women's health is constantly impacted by the gender gap. Endocrine-disrupting compounds can cause cancer and may be involved in vast occupational exposure in traditional jobs that women do. Cosmetologists, nail salons, none of these are regulated in a safe way to protect women. Nurses have more, female nurses have more workplace violence than police officers. You'll never hear that on the news, you know, right? Clothing, uniforms, PPE are all made for default man or a smaller version of a man without taking into account breasts, smaller gait, smaller hands, more fat density, less muscle mass, and on and on and on. Seatbelts, iPhones, wearable tech is one size fits man, and it's hurting women in many ways. Voice recognition is better at recognizing a man's voice. When Apple introduced their uh, like wearable watches, their health, you know, like iWatch, they didn't even think to include a menstrual calendar in the original version. Probably wasn't a woman involved in that decision. There are major and innumerable, innumerable data gaps in healthcare. Breast pumps are dominated by a monopolized market. Black women are 243% more likely to die from childbirth than a white woman. I could go on and on. The truth of this book is infuriating. The problem is so vast, it's like paralyzing to think about. I, I, it's hard to know where even to, to begin. Um, but this book is a phenomenal piece of work. Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Mend by Perez. 
I highly recommend it. All right, let's get to the questions from email, people that listen to the podcast. This is from Brian, last name withheld. Uh, my question is regarding the Bills, the Bills Bengal game injury. The news states that he is in critical condition. My understanding, they got his heart back in rhythm, but why would ICU doctors keep him sedated? I know he is intubated. Is that why? I also, what conditions after heart uh, resuscitation is Hamlin possibly going through? Okay, so this, is, this happened right at the beginning of January. So <clears throat> I'm a little late answering this question, but it's still it's very interesting to think about. So, um, and I'm not super knowledgeable about. I mean, I've I've read a couple like news articles about about him and what happened, and I watched the footage where you know he gets hit in the chest, and then two, he gets up, and then like two seconds later he falls, he collapses. They did chest compressions, and he was intubated on the scene, I believe. So my first thought when I saw that is like, well, the blunt trauma just induced a, you know, a, an arrhythmia, <clears throat> like maybe he, you know, just a, it was just timed at the wrong time in his cardiac cycle, and it, and he went into V fib or V tac. And then lost the pressure, and he rested. Uh, so that was my first thought. My second thought is that he had he had an undiagnosed uh, risk factor for sudden cardiac death. And some one thing that's really important to think about was sudden cardiac death. So that's not just a phrase; it's a diagno it's a thing. It's a diagnosis. I think a lot of people don't realize that sudden cardiac death is a diagnosis. It's not just like a how did he die? Oh, he suddenly died of cardiac death. Like it's an actual diagnosis and it's a category. Uh, and it's, and there's two branches, there's basically like two branches of it. Uh, you can, that you can die of sudden cardiac death, right? Right. Um, and young athletes are at high risk to die of sudden cardiac death, higher risk than the average population. It's not like a super prevalent disease, but it's usually a structural problem with the heart, like the actual heart muscle. There's something wrong with it. And what the classic, classic one is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, sometimes abbreviated as HCOM, or sometimes people call it HOCOM, um, where you just have too much muscle in your left ventricular outflow tract from your LV going out. Um, and that can get in the way and it can stop full of blood flow and you can have sudden cardiac arrest, particularly being tachycardic um, or having low blood pressure. And athletes exert themselves and are tachycardic. So if you have that under, underlying undiagnosed someone can suddenly certainly drop dead of that um there's also something called sam the systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve that's related to this is all related to lvot obstruction left ventricular outflow obstruction um the there's a surgical remedy for for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy which is a it's usually involves a sternotomy with a cardiac surgeon who who uh carves out part of your inside of your left ventricle so you have a better um, so that was my, one of my thoughts. And then the other part of sudden cardiac death is usually, so there's a structural problem or, or an electrical conduction problem where you have like long QT syndrome or Brugada syndrome. Uh, and, and you can also have, you know, myocarditis is a reason of sudden cardiac death. Anyway, the point is um, and delay and cardiac arrest because of that. So the, those things can cause sudden cardiac death in athletes. So those are all, all my thoughts. Now, I have no idea if uh, the NFL screens for these things, like if everyone gets an echocardiogram. I, I don't know. So if, I don't know what the likelihood of those things are. I've, I have no idea. Um, but, you know, the, the this guy got admitted, and he was intubated probably because it was a code, and he probably had a little bit of lung problems because maybe he had some ribs that were cracked. Maybe he had an aspiration pneumonia or pneumonitis or something. Um, anyway, but I think he's doing fine. I believe he's discharged. But they figured it out, right? He probably needs a halter monitor to monitor his rhythm out and he probably had an echo and, a, and some other stuff so i'm sure that they they probably figured out what what it was 
and I have no idea about his. If, if he did have certain, if he does have a hokum, hardy cardiomyopathy, he certainly cannot play until that can be resolved. Um, now, if he, he if he has a halter monitor and everything's negative, everything's negative, then maybe it was just a a one-off, you know, blunt trauma causing a, an, an, an arrhythmia. Anyway, they'll figure it out. Um, I posted some videos about this, and of course, I, <clears throat> you know, the anti-vax crowd took off with it, and <clears throat> I just think it's very, well, it's just so tragic. I mean, um, how the 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 unbelievable misinformation that's going on with athletes and sudden cardiac death. Um, there's not an increased incident of it after the vaccines. There's some terrible data out there that it's like a, someone putting a bunch of headlines. People are like, oh, the headlines. How do we ignore these headlines? And it's just the average person lacks a complete, lacks the, the f a fundamental understanding of how statistics works, how base rate works, and they just don't get it. And they think they do, and they get very upset, and they have conspiratorial thinking, and it's just it's very sad. Um, there's no evidence that there's increased incident of sudden cardiac death w amongst athletes after the the rollout of the mRNA vaccines. <clears throat> I'm probably preaching to the choir. If you're listening to my podcast, you're likely not an anti-vax person. Anyway, it's just terrible fallout from all this. Okay, that'll wrap it up for today. Uh, email me at icu doc, icu ecmo at gmail. I'm on TikTok, ICUDoc is my handle, and then Instagram, ICUDoctor TikTok. And I'll see you sometime next time I get around to recording. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.